Hello and welcome to another episode of the Decade Podcast. Today we had the honor to sit with Annika Shelley live here in our studio in Jenshipping. We talked about a lot of different things since she's been involved in a lot of different things. She's been both a costume designer and the writer for H&M's sustainability report. And we talked about her current work at Save the Children and how children and supply chains are connected especially in the developing world. We also talked about her love of Japan, Reiki, and uh, she shared some stories about her personal journey with depression. So with that, I give you our next episode. to a new episode of The Decade and a warm welcome to you, Annika Shelley. So glad to have you here today. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. How are you today? How are you today? I'm doing, uh, if I were doing any better, I'd probably be arrested, but thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Perfect. Um, I think you have a really interesting story and I would like to start a bit from the beginning uh, with a solid background check with you like who are you and uh, what got you where you are today and what are you working on at the moment what is taking up the most of your time so uh, to quote Winnie the Pooh I'm going to start from the beginning Um, so I I grew up in a diplomatic uh, household which meant that we moved every two to three years so I grew up in Canada the United States uh, Mexico Colombia Denmark Germany Saudi and then I continued and moved to Japan and then during studies, I took off to Vancouver. I lived on Maui and just kept traveling until about 20 years ago when I moved to Sweden. Um, so basically, uh, my life up until now, I can divide into thirds. So the first uh, the first stage, I would say I was really trying to avoid and fight depression actually which i think has been like a really really big motivator for me if it can be a motivator it's like okay discovering how can you figure out who you are and really try and dig yourself out of these dark holes which is sort of where i was for a long time but um but basically uh i went to school here in sweden but uh and then flopped around in different parts of the world I had a very, very strong interest when I was about 11 about Japan, and that would sort of color uh, what I ended up doing later in life. Um, So basically, I went to university in Canada and uh, walked into English literature because I could, writing was my sort of my superpower. And so English literature, which is just like one of the yeah, it, it doesn't scream uh, job, if you know what I'm saying. Um, but uh, And I did miserably. So I basically uh, left university and uh, decided when I was living on Maui, after I'd bought that one-way ticket to Maui, mm-hmm. that I was going to study what I 
was super interested in, and that's sort of been my red thread through life. So I ended up studying uh, East Asian studies with a focus on Japan. And that's when I say Japanese studies, I mean everything to do with Japan. So it was everything from judo and Japanese society to very esoteric, never heard of before Japanese philosophers, um, to political thought, to economics, to film, to the full gambit. So I continued with that. And then after university, I ended up getting a job in Japan. But before I, I moved to Japan, I was working in a theater for three years for a completely crazy uh, costume designer. So if you want to know something about corsets, then <laughs> sweaty corsets, you just come to me. I'll sort you out. Um, and um, But then I packed up my stuff and I moved to Japan and I worked as an English teacher in Japan. And uh, I had my honeymoon period in Japan, six months. It was like, wow, I'm here. And then became uh, quite depressed again. And it was like this sort of cyclical, not feeling good. Um, and I didn't, I kind of white knuckled it for years and years to, until I really figured out what actually was, was going on. But um, then I took a vacation to San Francisco, which you should never do because it's such an amazing city that you'll leave your job, you'll break up with your boyfriend and pack up your things <laughs> and go um, and get out of your contract and, and move there with zero plan, uh, which is exactly what I did. And one day when I was looking for an apartment, uh, I walked into the, the, uh, the San Francisco Ballet and uh, not only found an apartment, but I also found a little job ad. It was like a little teeny note on a bulletin board. This was way before, you know, different sort of technological uh, um, uh, solutions, so on and so forth. And it basically said production assistant wanted. So I took that note and no one else got to see it. And they couldn't understand. We had very few people applying for this job. Wow. Wonder why. <laughs> I can't imagine why. And I just, wow. So I, I got the job. Um, and so I did that for, for uh, a year. And then um, things kind of uh, went to hell in a handbasket, so I packed up my things again um, and then moved to Vancouver, and I worked in film, and I worked in production. Um, and again, this this thing with, with depression was sort of, you know, it was still there with me. Um, but during this time, my mother was plotting to get me to move to Sweden, and I said, you know, I'm not going to move unless I have a job. And so she found a job at the Japanese embassy for in the cultural division. And that was completely, it was totally, I couldn't say no. So basically, um, I should add a caveat here that I'm sounding like I actually was offered the job, which I wasn't. And that was like my, my big cunning plan. So I, I bought a one-way ticket and um, got interviews with the Japanese embassy. And then after three months of interviews, so on and so forth, um, I, I didn't get the job. So I went to Denmark, which you do, and drank red wine and cried for a week and then came back. And then um, uh, I got my Swedish uh, citizenship or my permit. Anyway, um, and that sort of started, I got a job at the Stockholm School of Economics. And my first position at the Stockholm School of Economics was at the Japanese Institute, which was also, again, uh, largely my background. So anything that had to do with non-academic work, so we need a web page, we need this, that, and the other thing. I had zero um, background in this whatsoever, but it just kind of landed uh, on my lap. And that's sort of my part of... Um, of what's dictated or been like apart from the red thread of me pursuing what it is that really means something to me and what I feel like this is what I should be doing. Um, it's, it's this wonderful word autodidactism, which is basically that you learn on your feet. And I can say, just as a caveat, for the past 20 years, there isn't a single job that I've had in Sweden that actually had anything to do with 
my educational background or my skill set. But my basic skill set was writing, and that's sort of what, what got me through there. At any rate, so I worked at the Japanese Institute for five years, and finally I said, wow, academia, wonderful, um, if you don't necessarily want to do something else. But I had too many ants in my pants, so I thought I need to do something. So I asked my boss, you need to fire me um, <laughs> because I'm going crazy. I need to do something else. Um, the theater bug kicked in. Uh, I'd seen a, a burlesque show a number of years before, and I decided that I was going to produce a burlesque show, which is exactly what I did with the money that I got from, from leaving the Japanese Institute, which was at Sarajatyotam, the wicked and decadent cabaret show. So it was glitter and feathers and boobs and God knows what else. Did that. Um, and then, again, it's sort of like this pendulum between extremes. It's sort of like a calm, and then it gets stormy. And, of course, there I'm lying in the bathtub, which I've done many times, praying to sweet Jesus, get me out of this, and I'll probably, I'll promise I'll be good, which, of course, never works. Uh, I never I never keep that promise, unfortunately, uh, which might be explaining why I'm a Buddhist and not a Christian. Anyway, <laughs> so I uh, I produced the show, uh, and then I got a job at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a financial translator. Again, I did a test, mm -hmm. and it turned out I was quite good at this, and I realized, wow, this is how you understand how companies are built and how they're run mm. and following the money and so on and so forth. So accounting, my family just thought she's going to die of boredom again. But this, there was something, it's sort of this sort of Steve Jobs looking, uh, you know, in the, in sort of the rear view uh, uh, window yeah. that it actually made sense. But I did that and I realized after six months, okay, I'm sitting here translating. I have too, much, too many ants in my pants. Mm. So I started my own company. And did this uh, professionally outside of Price Waterhouse Coopers. I had my company uh, twice. Realized, okay, now I know what there is to know about financial translation, but I need a, the creativity outlet. So I ended up getting uh, a job in advertising, and I got it uh, also at uh, Oriflame, where I started writing. Uh, copywriting for fragrance. So they sent me to Paris to learn about perfumes. I got a massive migraine, came back, and I realized this doesn't have to make sense, but it has to be beautiful. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. After six months, I thought, wow, okay, I need to do something else. And I got tapped to help build up the corporate communications department at Oriflame. They said, hey, you know, you're sort of North American, you know, I didn't. I didn't. But anyway, so um, so I ended up doing this, but actually I kind of did with PricewaterhouseCoopers. So I did that, and then that's when I started working with corporate social, social responsibility issues, and I thought, ha, this, this is something. Yeah. So this is, we're talking about 2009-ish, mm. and while I was working at Oriflame, working mostly with internal communications and corporate communications, I was also teaching at Baris for advertising, so on and so forth. Mm. And this holds bearing because I tried to, my best campaign to create, make my job about CSR at Oriflame. And I got a big fat no. And then my inner compass said, okay, you, this is where you need to be. So I quit and I hung on to Baris and I taught there for, for a year and a half. Um, and then during that time, I was looking around, okay, who is working with sustainability who's consulting and at that time there was barely one company and they're called you and we they did sort of measurement with the environment so on and so forth but then another company showed up called Futera and they're an advertising company that they have I would say 
completely changed the way we communicate or we should be communicating about sustainability. Mm. And their game was, why does it have to be depressing and negative? And, you know, you can't guilt people mm. into doing the right thing. It's much better. How about using humor or making it lighthearted or showing, you know, a showing a vision of heaven rather than threatening with hell? Mm-hmm. And that really, really responded. I really responded to that. Mm-hmm. So I harassed the CEO with lunches for a year mm-hmm. until he finally gave up. People generally do give up. Mm-hmm. But he gave up and called me and said, you know, you have a clothing background. You can, you've got English, da, da, da. We need someone who doesn't know, who knows something about CSR, but not mm-hmm. too much, because then you'll end up talking above people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was offered to pitch for the sustainability report for H&M. So no pressure there. So I pitched and I got it. And that was a very, very sweaty three years working with a sustainability report. And that's where PwC and the financial reporting came in handy because then I realized, okay, then there's integrated reporting. So it was really a school for me. It was the best school ever. Um, so I did uh, three reports. We went from you know two prizes to five prizes, one of them for communication. It felt like, okay, this is really something. Mm. And then after that, I thought, okay, I've done this. Um, I don't feel like they really need me anymore. And at that point, I was on a flight and I met uh, the head of the Swedish steel industry. And we started talking about fashion and clothing and what it means, so on and so forth. And I ended up doing work for them, um, doing communication uh, projects in terms of sustainability, how to talk about something. And actually, the example here is they were Sweden is number one in 3D power to technology for steel, which is not super common knowledge. And they were going to send up a very tired, dusty, I dare say, dry professor to talk about 3D powder technology during Mm Almadalen. And I thought, guys, you know, we've got to be a little more exciting than this. Let's uh, let's do something. So we took a bicycle and we pulverized it and then we mixed it and 3D printed a pair of Lady Gaga shoes. <laughs> uh, and that was because basically I was at a party and I met a designer and so on and so forth. So safe to say for the past 10 years, I've been working um, the sort of the nexus between sustainability, um, strategy and communications and development. Mm. Um, and I've done that for uh, for a number of different actors. So it's been with H&M, it's been with the steel industry, the aluminum industry. Mm. I worked with UNICEF, um, where they had just launched together with Save the Children and the UN Global Compact, um, child rights and business, mm. these principles. How can companies work with children's rights? But they they didn't know how to actually talk to companies. They they'd trained, you know, these fabled 700 managers mm. Uh, about sustainability and about children and they're like right now they're going to jump into action and they're going to work with kids and and of course it didn't happen mm. and so i went in there and i did an analysis and then basically wrote this report about where to where to move on from there mm. um and then i founded something called hybrid talks which is like a ted talk but it's twice as visual um and half as long and the idea is to take really really what i consider um, sexy designs, sort of like fashion and things that people naturally gravitate towards. And it's very, very visual. And we know that that's something that, that really brings the message across much quicker than words mm. um, to, to talk about, okay, this pen is awesome because it's made out of uh, pineapple skins that were picked by monks and yeah, any of that kind of thing. Mm. Um, 
So I did two rounds of hybrid talks and uh, coordinated with the steel industry, with the Stockholm School of Economics, with the fashion industry. So I think that really, I would say, pinpoints what it is that I do. I work with contrasts and I work with stakeholders who are on seeming opposite mm. ends, figure out what's in it for me mm. and answer that question for all of them. Mm so that everybody gets on the right track. Mm. I'm not going to say that I'm massively successful all the time, but it's like it's a process and it's mm. it's coming along. Mm. Um, which kind of leads me up uh, until today where I work as head of communications for child rights and business, not surprisingly, mm. at Save the Children, mm. which is a think and do tank within Save the Children, but it's global. Mm. And we have a number of, of uh, corporate social responsibility centers in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm. Wow, there we go. Amazing. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. There's so many breadcrumbs in there that uh, like make sense the way I know you right now. Like right. the breadcrumbs. Ah, that's so that's where that part of you comes from. And that's where that part of you come from. But so cool and fascinating to hear you talk about this. And like I can only imagine all the perspectives you have from different areas of your life that go into the person you are today. It's so cool. Yeah, you can you can really call you a world citizen, I would say. And right now you're working with Save the Children and uh, a lot of with supply chains and human rights in the beginning of supply chains. Right. Would you mind talking a bit through that process? Absolutely. So we take a very holistic view of um, supply chains. So it's actually value chains yeah. um, that, that we work with. So it's it's basically whatever happens on an HQ level, it's going to trickle down through policies. It's going to because basically it all starts there. Uh, because that's where very often the decisions are, are are being made. And basically, we work, uh, we have um, a CSR center, a few of them actually in the Southeast Asia. Um, and it's it's a unique CSR center in the world where it focuses on children and families. And our team there, they're very hands-on. So they go and they work with factories and they work uh, out in the field. So they'll do um, uh, a number of assessments. They'll do sort of a due diligence for companies and then it kind of uh, filters back up. Yeah. So we work from the top down, down up. Yep. And it's it's basically a consultancy, which is quite rare for, for a nonprofit. So we, we want to move beyond the philanthropic stage. This is not about transactional business. This is about transformational business. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it, 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 it has to do with business behavior. And it's not about not doing business. It's like, how are you doing business mm. and showing the win-win mm. to companies? I think from an HQ perspective and from a personal perspective, it can be hard to look through the different layers of the supply chain because often in the Western world, they are so long and so complex. Do you know any like common fall pits when thinking about supply chain that managers and people end up thinking like when buying a shirt or when buying something else that comes from these uh, East Asian countries where they produce these things? Right. Um, I would say transparency is always uh, an issue. Yeah. Um, and also this feeling that, that we don't have an issue. It's a little bit like the black swan, mm. that it doesn't exist until you're on a trip to Australia and realize that they very much do exist. Yeah. Um, and, and also looking from the, the perspective of, of kids, that very often when companies will do their due diligence, um, that they will miss kids entirely. And children have any, and I want you to, to imagine, you know, imagine a little kid that maybe can't speak yet, they can't move, they can't um, earn their own money, for example, they can't vote, they literally have no voice and they have no power. And they're very often bypassed in the due diligence. 
So they're not even a blip on the screen, which considering they're about a third of the global population and sometimes half the global population, this is clearly an issue. And if you look at the phrase, the, the, there are a few words you never want to see your corporate name in a media headline, which is child labor found with XYZ company. Yeah. So that's one perspective. But I also just wanted to throw in there that when it comes to the value chain, it's also, it can be about marketing practices. It's sort of, you know, from a Swedish perspective, sometimes it can be difficult to really relate potentially to a little kid who, who you know, who works out in the field and, and, you know, who's picking cotton in Uzbekistan or whatever. It's like, okay, well, we don't have those issues. Okay, well, if you look back a number of years ago, there was like this big, um, this big discussion about messaging on T-shirts for kids. That you'll you'll walk in a store and there'll be like the pink section and then there'll be the blue section. And the pink section, all the girls' T-shirts were you know be cute, uh, or um, you know be glittery, that kind of thing. Whereas boys, it was like you know find your own adventure, so on and so forth. So that was sort of that's like what kind of messages are you sending to these kids? Like very very specific. Mm. Um, so that's going to have an effect. It's also what kind of policies do you have in the company for parents mm. so that they can take care of their kids. Now, Sweden is obviously in a very um, uh, a very strong position in, in, in that regard when how it treats uh, parents and parental leave, and but also for the rights of fathers to be able to spend time with their children, mm. so on and so forth. But this is very this is very general because I know that, for example, in banking or in law. It's it's a little more conservative and wouldn't necessarily have the same the same level of uh, potentially generosity yeah. in terms of of, uh, of parental leave and that sort of thing. It's a very holistic view. I guess one thing that would be a common thread throughout all this is the sense of agency. Like, who has agency in these issues? Who are responsible for thinking about the workers and the kids in? in uh, the beginning of the value chain like is it the management that have agency or is it no but we're we're ordering from this company so this company has agency and responsibility over the where where they order from or is it should the outside politics and regulations tell them that what is okay and what isn't okay like the issue of agency throughout the value chains and and kind of pushing like right now i think some companies are pushing that we don't have to uh, act upon this before someone else tells us that we have to act upon this what do you think about the agency aspects throughout the value chain? Right. I would um, potentially flip that over and yeah. see, for example, uh, one one classic example um, is is Sturanso. A number of years ago, they they got into trouble because what were they called? Sturanso. Yeah. Because they basically, um, it was discovered that that there were children picking out paper from a garbage pile, um, and this was a third or fourth tier supplier. Mm. And the repercussions of that discovery were just, were massive. It was everything from the mother of the CEO calling him up saying, what are you doing and what kind of company are you running here? Down to people getting fired to basically, um, it, was, it was a massive um, uh, ripple effect throughout the company. So it's, I think... Yes, there's the compliance side. Okay, you know, uh, regulations, like what, you know, you know, in Sweden, it's like, okay, where's the responsibility lay? Mm. But I, I would say, you know, what side of, of history do you really want to be on? What, com- what kind of company do you want to work with? Or what, what kind of company do you want to be? Mm. And, it, but also looking at, okay, how can we 
um, look at our business model so that it becomes a sustainable business model. Because at the end of the day, if it's not a sustainable business model, because let's face it, companies are there very, for the most part to make money. Mm. But there's all, there are different ways of making money. Mm. So I think it's a matter of it's it, it can be looked at from a branding perspective. It can be looked at from a compliance perspective and, and just thinking, okay, who, who am I and who do we want to be? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start with why you're doing things and what's the purpose of your business like you there's this kind of cheesy quote that you have to breathe in your life in order to live but breathing is not the purpose of life as goes with organizations and businesses that you have to make money but it's not the reason to organize and make a business in the first place because you have to something have a purpose of what you're wanting to do like why are you organizing what's the purpose it's something like we're studying a lot like starting from the right grounds and then building upwards instead of starting with, oh, I want to be rich. And then what's the shortest way to become rich? And rather starting like, what company do I want to be in? As you said. Yeah. And I think like we, as we talked about uh, earlier as well, like f- future proofing your company, like uh, consumers and people in general are getting very much more aware about this kind of stuff. And if you're Maybe I'm, I'm a bit biased because I'm studying sustainability, but I really think and I really hope that looking into the future, if you're not running a responsible business, looking through this kind of stuff, I think you're going to be left behind a bit. Do you, do you see any trends going on like that with within your work or, or companies getting more, more and more aware and working more proactively with this kind of stuff? Companies themselves are... My feeling is that they still, it's its a hybrid. There's some companies that are speeding up their process to become more sustainable, taking a greater look uh, at, at what's going on in their supply chains and their value chains. Um, but and just quickly to, to double back what you, what you said in terms of, of companies, you know, starting with an intention to be um, a quote unquote sustainable in, ter- in terms of the triple bottom line, so people, planet, profit. If you look at a company like Patagonia, now, you know, sustainability and Patagonia, they're sort of, they're, they're one and the same. They're almost synonymous. But they didn't start out that way. They didn't start out wanting to be the most sustainable. They, they wanted an outdoor company to produce uh, quality wear, so on and so forth. And then they realized, wow, you know, we have a lot, you know, big effect here on our environment and the social aspects. And so they, dov- they doubled back. Um, I think one can agree that that's a much tougher schlep to do that than to start with the intention of you know where do I want to be so again I think the the nature of how uh, companies are working with nonprofits for example that is changing they they want something different and in essence because a lot of their employees want something different mm. they want to be they don't want to be treated like an ATM machine anymore they want to know that their money is being used in an, an area that preferably has to do with their business, that they actually have an effect. They want to be able... There's some companies, for example, that don't donate money, that they will donate X number of hours, for example, to help like a nonprofit in an, in an area. Like Ericsson is one of these companies, for example. They will contribute um, people hours, you know, in terms of setting up telecom structure um, after an earthquake, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think there's... Uh, that's one end of the spectrum. Um, you've got other ends of the spectrum where people start from a very sustainable point of view. There are others who talk about their sustainability work, um, or they can, they think sustainability work is philanthropy, 
where, you know, we build schools. And, and, and very often we'll get that question, oh, you know, our employees really want to be able to, um, you know, get in there and, uh, and, and build something. And that I think that reflects a real need or it's a desire from people deep down inside who basically have everything and they want to do good in the world. They want mm. to do something. But I, I will say there are thousands of schools built all over the world with wonderful corporate names that have no kids in them because there's no electricity or there are no teachers or the kids have to walk several kilometers and they might get attacked on the way to the school. There are no bathrooms. You know, if you look at sort of uh, young girls uh, or girls who are menstruating, they have nowhere to go. I mean, it's there are any number of, of reasons or uh, a village that's basically saying, Great, you want to build school, but we're starving. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why one would want to link arms with uh, a reputable nonprofit that has uh, a lot of uh, experience and competence with the locally based nonprofits and organizations, sort of civil society. And that's something that I would say that I'm very proud of when it comes to Sweden is that Save the Children Sweden, that's something that, that is really, instead of, of marching in there with a bunch of money saying, you know, this is what we're, we're going to build that school, whether you're starving or not, whether there's arsenic in your drinking water, whatever, they're like, okay, what do you actually need? Mm. And then working together. And this is something, Save the Children has been around for 100 years. And I'm very proud to say that the founder of Save the Children actually got arrested for her beliefs. What beliefs? Well, she basically Save the Children came out of the First World War when there was the embargo from Great Britain towards Germany. And there were literally millions of children that were that were starving. Mm. And this woman, Eglantine Jeb, uh, basically uh, demonstrated it, uh, you know, in, uh, very publicly and very loudly in, uh, in, in the UK, saying that this was wrong. It's massively unpopular. Um, and she ended up in front of a judge and he found her guilty. But he fined her one pound and he paid it himself. And she is basically any human rights or children's human rights legislation that is based on a, 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 a UN level, uh, any countries of the Child Rights Convention, that, that stems from her work. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is sort of the, the birthplace of, and it, it marks the organization as being very pragmatic. It's like, okay, how do, how do we work with the parameters of this? And that sort of, it kind of feeds into my own department where um, factories, for example, um, have had issues in recruiting people because a lot of their about 61 million children in China that are being left behind to be cared for by their grandparents or older siblings um, because the parents have to go somewhere else to work. They can't bring their kids with them because there's no health care, there's no schools, so on and so forth. But of course, you know, being a parent, you know, you might see your child maybe once a year, maybe every two years. And of course, that's going to be a major stress factor, does it, whatever parent you're talking to. And there are going to be a number of mistakes. And it's like, OK, how can we get a factory to handle this in a specific way? And so uh, we established something called child friendly spaces, which come that have basically been innovated from refugee camps, which is basically once families come into the refugee camp, we try to establish a child-friendly center, which means bringing as much normalcy to these kids as possible. So we took this model, building a kindergarten. We convinced a factory owner uh, in China to build a kindergarten. So they basically converted the, the senior management's karaoke room to a kindergarten, which wasn't massively popular. <laughs> but what ended up happening was after three years, they were able to recoup the cost of that 
Secondly, the number of mistakes that the people were making on the floor were, went down by a significant percentage. And within the first year, ordinarily on New Year's Day, when you were going to recruit people, they would open the door. And usually it's like all the factories are struggling with each other, vying for talent. Mm. They opened the door and there was a lineup around the corner because everybody had heard that this fa factory... <laughs> We'll pick that up. We'll pick that up later. <laughs> this factory has childcare, and so this is a model that we've kind of replicated. And this is this is this is what I mean when I say being pragmatic. Okay, how can we, you know, answer what's in it for me? How can we make the business case for the factory owner so that they'll do this? Mm. Because just saying do it for the kids is not going to resonate with everyone. I really think that's powerful. That the. What you're doing with your expertise is creating real value instead of just something that a company can write on a company report. Because that's often a topic in media and that's when companies get uh, a lot of bad press is when someone find out that their big purposeful thing that they did in the feral world to help people was quite hollow. And they yeah, plant a school here in the middle of the desert, say we built a school that is helping the people in this country, but really it's just a empty building. Right. So I think it's really good that you're grounding from the local because your expertise has real value in, in the, those fields. And uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on like greenwashing with corporations in the Western world speaking good, but perhaps not following through all the way. Right. Well, I think um, the, the topic or the arena that, that comes to mind is the Stockholm School of Economics or MISUM. Uh, their Sustainability Institute, they, they produced a, a report um, called Walking the Talk, I believe. Yeah. And they looked at uh, listed Swedish companies and um, analyzed how many uh, are actually reporting on sustainability, what parameters are they using, and, and you know how serious are they. And they found that very few companies beyond uh, had an actual plan beyond five years, not even that, maybe three years which one could argue that's not terribly sustainable. Mm. So um, I also, um, you know, working for a child rights organization, I, I like to use the word uh, kid washing, where it's very, very common, where you'll see whenever companies uh, are talking about, they want to show that they're thinking about the future, mm. they'll put a picture of a baby or a child. And that's, that's how they represent it, but they're not following it mm. per se. And that's a consistent, it's sort of, it, it's a light bulb moment when we bring that up during a meeting of, guys, you do understand you have like 15 pictures of kids on your sustainability report, not even sustainability report, your, you know, your general financial reporting, but you have no policy for child labor in terms of your investments. It, it, it's kind of, it, it gets a little awkward sometimes. Mm, I can imagine. If ideally, how should a company operate? around this stuff that we've been talking about? In my world, I think that they should look at challenges as opportunities. You know, if, if their lifeline and their lifeblood is, is, is making money, avoiding risk, attracting talent, you know, all these things, I would look at, okay, um, you know, how can we pivot? What can we do here? And I think that's something, you know, this whole year has shown us that there's some you know, when, when stores ran out of, uh, of uh, alcohol gel or sort of antibacterial mm. gel, I don't care what company you were, if you were making pantyhose or hair clips or hairspray, you're thinking to yourself, why didn't I not make hand gel? 
because it was going it was flying off the shelves and apparently baking yeast and soil was also flying off the shelves and that's also a very interesting one (laughs) but i think that's something if i wish something for a company is that they would be smart about it and would look at that and go okay um how can we pivot how can we capitalize on something and be a business and be smart about it. And it's it's not like there are not there are no examples of companies going from one thing to the like seemingly opposite. I mean, look at something like Nokia. Mm. They started making tires and they went over to mobile phones. Mm. I mean, if they can do that journey, Krapsult, mm. it started, you know, frying pans and they're making bicycles. Mm. You can you can do it. You can do anything. Yeah. So I think um, looking at sustainability as a process rather than a project yes that and and i and i think this is something that i learned when i was contributing to the sustainability report for, for h&m was that it was it was really um innovation was the thing that really really grabbed me mm. that if you can talk about innovation then everybody can relax a little bit it's it's inspirational you can fail forward which is the mainstay of science mm. this is how you do it but if you talk about you know sustainability, when are we sustainable? When are we done? That's a project. Mm. Building a school, that's a project. Mm. So that would be my uh, my hope because it's also more inspiring. Everybody can get on board on this, yeah. and everybody can do something. And they would put a budget. <laughs> Did I say that last? Put a budget. <laughs> Great, and and I also think that we as consumers have a lot of power as well our voice matter more than we think i think um do you have any tips that we as consumers can think of in a process of buying something is there something we can do that's a, a long list uh, yeah. I, I i would say first and foremost no one can do everything but everybody can can do something and i think it's it's you know you guys are studying you're developing critical minds and i would say wherever you are in life that a critical mind is is always going to be a helpful tool um, I would say focusing on where are things produced that buying locally produced things um, it's also about uh, consumer behavior you know really you know, do you really need that thing etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. but just sort of questioning a little bit I mean I think some of the big uh, the big issues here are if we were to replace one meat-based meal with one vegetarian meal per week that that would have an effect because we know that that of course uh, a meat-based diet it's contributing to a number of greenhouse gases and and so on and so forth and a lot of for example this is taking it to an extreme but a lot of the the um uh, the amazon forest is being chopped down mm. to be able to to graze cattle and that sort of thing i think that's sort of and and also to to do a little bit of you know but you don't know what you don't know so it's we absolutely have power, and I think of, of uh, for example, um, at one point when I was uh, working on the H and M report, there was there was this big um, uh, reveal about Angora sweaters that the that a lot of the, these rabbits were, were basically being skinned alive, which is clearly um, distressing, and there was a huge outcry, and H and M they didn't stop producing, but they certainly gave them food for thought, so it's really really questioning mm. it's the critical mind of of where this is uh, uh but it's pick pick one part of the one aspect that that interests you i think that's powerful and i want to connect back to what you said about the sustainability being more of a process and like looking at it 
not as a challenge but as an opportunity because that's something we really try to connect with in the podcast to lift up the positivity and like look forward because that also you said businesses are made out of people right and people are made out of emotions and the feelings and that's a there's a book by rob hopkins titled what if Mm. and his whole agenda is to spur creativity and imagination and the way he says that can be done is to look at the future like what would you imagine the future to be like how would a how would you like a city to look how would you like your society to look uh, from perhaps from a sustainability perspective and then by starting with that that in turn connects with your biology because you're thinking ahead and that spurs certain chemicals and compounds that fuels your uh, creativity and it fuels really uh, the positive emotions in your brain and that's kind of the opposite of what you mentioned earlier about depression um that can be an idea starvation and uh, that's why we think that sustainability has to be shed light upon as an opportunity rather than a challenge because if you always look at it as a challenge and doom and gloom then it kind of makes us shut down like biochemically so if businesses need to look at it as an opportunity, then people need to look at it as an opportunity because it all connects down to the personal level as well. And I think we need to see that as well, that it's not businesses only, but businesses that are made out of people and people that have to have these needs fulfilled if they're going to be creative and imaginative. Um, so I think there's really importance in connecting what we talk about sustainability down to the personal level like personal development personal healing and that's sort of things and that's why i think we can connect a bit to your journey as well like talking about depression and talking about where you are right now um because i think you have a very inspiring journey there and there's topics that we haven't even touched upon yet that i want to get into um, but I'll, I'll let you introduce whatever you feel has come up and now we'll add on to it absolutely um i would say um Depression is something that that has been part of of my chemical makeup for uh, many many years, and and actually, I came from um, a, a well loved household, and we traveled a lot, and and so on and so forth. But it it really hit me when I was about uh, eleven, yeah. where I I wasn't doing well, and I didn't have, and I think that's part of there was uh, guilt around that. And many years later, that I didn't feel good, and and I I I hadn't been beaten. I didn't come from this very traumatic. Uh, background and I think there's no coincidence that um, the time when depression kicks in for a lot of of young people, eating disorders, um, self harm, um, drugs, you know, all this, all all of these issues, that they kick in around puberty, and mm. we're not really, it's not really being handled beyond. Number one, it's, it's it's not being diagnosed, and number two, it's when it is diagnosed that it's it's very very narrow. Um, and then it's basically KBT and, and antidepressants, hmm. which absolutely can save lives. Um, but in, in my particular case, we moved around so much that I never actually got the help that I needed. Hmm. Um, but my focus was very much on school. I did a lot of sports. Again, uh, supportive, supportive family, but they didn't, they didn't really know what to do with me. But again, because we kept on moving, there was, um, I kind of white-knuckled it throughout um, but by the time I was 18 or 19, I really, um, there was very, I felt like I was 150 years old. 
I was not doing well. And that's a lot of things were happening on a personal front. My parents were divorcing, all this kind of stuff. I was studying the wrong thing. And I just thought, well, the hell with this. And I bought a one-way ticket to Maui. I'd been there once when I was seven. I had no, nothing. And, and at the same time, there was uh, a friend of mine who was a few years older than me who handed me a book on Vipassana meditation. And this book, I opened it up, and one of the first things it says was, was uh, one of the Four Noble Truths, according to Buddhism, which is life is suffering. And that just absolutely smacked me across the head. And it was so gratifying to read it. Well, number one, because somebody actually talked about the elephant in the room. Things weren't so goddamn great. I wasn't doing well. And here was a whole life philosophy um, that had been developed over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years that was right in my hands. So I had this book, and I had music with me, and I had uh, another um, book uh, called Siddhartha. It was Herman Hess. And I'm sitting on this flight with all these happy families going on vacation to Maui, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? And I'm reading, and you know, the you know, Siddhartha left his village, so I'm sort of walking with him, and it was like this was part of my path. Mm. And I got to Maui, and again, um, I didn't know anyone, and I, I ended up having like four different jobs, and, and that was sort of the thing that kept me going. But what I should say is this, that I ended up, um, I had a sensitivity to my hormones. And that has to do, in particular for women, it's about 10% of women who will become um, depressed, uh, anxious, to the point where they're almost su they are suicidal based on their, their hormones. But this was just, no one knew this at the time. My parents had no idea. I didn't know. But two weeks out of every month, I was fine. The other nice. two weeks, I was not fine. So it was kind of like this enough suffering to make me go deeper into the study of, of Buddhism. And it, it really, really, it was the engine that kept me moving um, and also gave me an anchor. It gave me something to hang on to because I didn't know why I was feeling so bad. But then again, I kept on moving and kept on moving. Fast forward, I'm in my 30s, and my uh, uh, my partner at the time said, you know, the stuff that you're going through, you do understand it's, it's, it's cyclical. This is happening every month. Mm. And it took someone else, a dude, to point that out to me. So I went to one doctor. She didn't even look at me. She just handed me a prescription for antidepressants. Didn't take it. Went to a number of them. And then... Uh, and I said to, I think, doctor number four, you know, I, th I think this is hormonally, this is hormonal. And she laughed in my face, a woman, nice, laughed in my face and said, no, I don't think so. And she said, if you ever get pregnant, then, um, you know, you're going to feel like a rock star. But again, I don't think so. And lo and behold, I had my daughter and I felt like a total rock star. I felt like normal. But this was a... Um, a, yeah, so this was a revelation. But then, of course, towards the end of the pregnancy, I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen here now? Mm. Um, and before, but before I'd gotten pregnant, I, I came across a doctor, another doctor who basically said, you know what? She actually started asking me questions. And I just thought, she said, you know, can you get up in the morning? Can you laugh at anything? Like she actually asked me mm. stuff. And just that was just so therapeutic that someone actually had a nuance for this. Like, what are we dealing with here? And she basically subscribed uh, antidepressants. And she said, 
you know what? I think you should take these just for yourself. Just give yourself this. Give yourself a life raft. And I did. And it felt like I'd been stuck in a cave for my whole life. And I saw the sun for the first time. Hmm. So that kind of gave me that, okay, now I can stand up and I can get up and I don't feel like I want to die. But the flip side of this, and there's always this this flip side, if you look at the light, the dark, and the Tao, and all this, is that with the sensitivity, um, with this depression, it also made me a very good writer. This sharpened my skills. This, this, made, this gave me my craft about what it is that I do. Um, and, and I relayed this to a friend of mine who was a music student at university, and I said, you know, have there ever been any, like, you know, great composers who, who were not depressed? And she said, yeah, there was one, but he wasn't very good. And I think that kind of tells you what you need to, what you need to know. So, you know, this is still, you know, at this point I'm, I'm uh, 40 something plus change. And, and so I'm going in, in different phases of my life and it, I still work on this. I still read, I still research, but the difference is I know what this is now. Um, and it's also, I've also turned my focus not just inward, which I've done for many years, but also mm. outward. Mm. Knowing that the age group between 18 and 30, they occupy by far the largest number of beds and psychiatric wards in this country. And it's not just here. The World Health Organization has basically said this is the number, suicide is the number one, I think it's the number one or number two killer of, of youth in the world, this is an epidemic, very much like another epidemic that we're, that we're looking at. And that's sort of, okay. And from an existential point of view, I can't help but think of this, okay, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? Yeah. Why am I doing this? And it's about purpose. And I think that's something that is innate with all of us. We want to know what our purpose is, whether it's to build the best car ever or to make that hat, or or to help older people, or work with animals, or what it, whatever it is, because it's the we've got the hedonistic, and then we've got the eudaimonic, which is these these sort of date back to sort of Socrates of how what is happiness. We live very much in the hedonic, which is sort of the now and the sort of the instant gratification, so on and so forth. Without you know, I'm all for instant. I'm all for any kind of gratification. I think instant gratification. Bring that on, absolutely. But I think there's also emptiness that comes with that when you realize that that's not the be-all and the end-all. You need a few short ones, but you also need the bigger questions. Mm. And this is sort of, I feel like my whole, if my life was a, a tidal wave of some kind, this is the power that moves me forward. Wow. To start off, thank you very much for, for sharing. I think a lot of people are fighting the same battle. As you pointed out, like it's number one killer for, for people between 18 to 30. So I think just with you sharing your story, you're very much contributing. And what I wonder is like you talked about these fundamental bigger questions. Is that something that you've been able to connect with easier with the help of your depression? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's. It's very much the, what is the purpose of life? And if you're depressed, you're, you're going to look for that. And you're, if you have the strength or you can grab onto something, you're going to fight for that tooth and nail. A lot of people don't, they don't find it because they're just, they just don't, don't have, they might not have, uh, they might not have been loved 
they might not have that that thing that they got when they're kids that kind of propels them. I'm also an innately curious individual and I find, you know, I still find things to be fascinated by and that absolutely um, drives me forward. And I think sometimes you just need someone else to be curious for you and someone to look at you and go, you know what, I think you have something because I am absolutely sure everybody, and I mean everybody, has something that they are really, really, really good at. One topic that we haven't gotten into that I know is a big part of your life that I that I want to bring up is your Reiki practice. Right. Because one, one aspect that we wanted to do with the podcast of you is take your whole personality and make a podcast out of it. And I think there's no one in the room better than you to describe Reiki and describe your process with Reiki. So would you do that? Absolutely. So... Years ago, when I was uh, living in Japan, uh, I was having coffee with uh, a woman who was uh, A, a born-again Christian, and B, uh, a Chinese medicine student. And if you know anything, I mean, just that is like a very, a very unusual combination. She invited me to a Reiki share group. I had no idea what this was. Um, and just to explain, Reiki is is a healing practice. It uh, originated in T- Tibet, but it, the sort of the the, the father uh, was a Japanese man by the name of Usui, and brought it and developed it in, in Japan. And so I went to this, this share group. There were about thirty of us there, and uh, a few of us were lying on sort of massage tables, and then there would be about five people per person working on that person. So there were massage therapists, there were craniosacral therapists, so on and so forth. And I was lying there and all they did was that they put their hands on me. So I had some people at my feet and some people at my head. And for whatever reason, I felt like it was almost like an like a mild electric current going through my body and it 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 manifested like white light. And I can't remember if it's all the colors become white light or it's the ultimate, but a lot of people I would say would consider this have have looked at this like divine energy in a sense, depending on what your definition of God is, so on and so forth. Um, uh, I would say, you know, the word Reiki, the last word, ki, is of course chi, which is life energy. And that's that's how I interpret it. So I was lying there and I just felt this white light literally coursing through my whole body until it reached the top of my head and literally it felt like the top of my head blew off and my eyes just blew up and it was just white light everywhere, which is really unexpected considering I had no idea what actually was going on. But my body clearly knew. Hmm. And I think, just as a caveat, if you look at Aikido, the martial art, you'll know that they don't move with their with their hands like fists it's a little bit like walking across ice and you uh, fall and you slip and fall if you're rigid in your body you're probably going to break something but if you're relaxed and fluid which is probably why a lot of drunk people when they slip on the ice they don't hurt themselves because they're completely relaxed Mm -hmm. anyway so this is the principle of reiki works in a similar way and it works a little bit uh i would say almost like acupuncture that it's it's the it's the exuding of life force that comes from our hands. We have a lot of nerve endings uh, in our hands, and it transfers onto uh, uh, another person somehow. Um, how this actually works and why it works, I know that there, there are papers written on this topic. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to sort of go into the sort of the nitty gritty of this, but my experience is that we all have an electromagnetic field around us, and this field somehow connects with people's hands and some people are more sensitive than others and i just 
Um, so basically, when I was in Japan, I got my first initiations, whereas, which is basically remo removing of, of blockages. Because when I turned around after that first event to give someone else Reiki, I was collecting all the quote-unquote garbage, and I felt really ill. So I had to go aside and figure out, okay, you need to ground yourself and basically release that energy into the earth. So I got my training in Japan, and then I got more training in Canada, and then I got some in Sweden. And then I've had sort of um, uh, unintended training, and this is kind of what happens. If you're standing around someone who is a Reiki practitioner, a lot of people call themselves Reiki masters. As far as I'm concerned, when you're dead, then you're, you know it's the very Japanese. You are never complete. You are never a master, so to speak. Mm. But you will literally get uh, a, a treatment based on... By being around each other we are like it's very matrix we're all like batteries that we exude energy and we suck it in and it's very much like the exchange between us and plants that's how i see it um so basically i've been uh, practicing this for the past 20 years and um different people ha will have different reactions um there'll be for example um i've treated people where around their neck area it's like very very um dark and I, could, I literally get a feeling or a, a, a picture of what's going on there and I'll have a chat with the person and sure enough they've had uh, an eating disorder uh, or some people for example they'll be very very well connected others will be disconnected there's like there's an energetic there's a disconnect between certain parts of the body and it follows the principles of the different um, uh, the different chakras or the different energy centers within the person. So it's going to be stronger. So what you basically want to do is make sure that it's a clear path. And this will translate into somebody after a treatment that they'll be able to sleep better. They might even start sleeping. Some people start crying. It's like a release. And it's like removing blockages. Because whatever it is that, that we think and that we see, the impressions that we take in, they lodge themselves in our bodies. Our body has its own intelligence. And some people will say that um, we have the brain, but the stomach is also its own brain. The heart is smart. The heart also knows. And there can be trauma on the body and injury. Um, and also, if we look at it from a very esoteric uh, uh, way, we inherit our genes from our parents. So if they have stuff in their background they haven't handled, we're potentially going to get this as well which Holocaust survivors, for example, and, and their relatives or their uh, their ancestors would be able to attest to. And also what's going on in the United States. It's sort of, okay, it's trauma from years and years and years back. That's fascinating. And uh, I think it's great that you share these things because we, we've kind of touched the surface on uh, with Amit in one episode that he spoke about he thinks that it's important to people to go into subjects that would be considered by a large group of people to be mumbo-jumbo because they can't understand it. But I think it's important to be open-minded and to actually kind of look at it with an open perspective. And uh, if it works, then it works. And as you say, there's there's papers written. And I think for me, who I consider myself a left-brain person, with I really like the rational thinking and, uh, and the kind of being able to explain things in a scientific way, in an empirical way. And... Um, which has limited me in some sense because I've been close-minded to, to these topics as you're describing, but I, I've been one of those persons who feel like, yeah, 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 that works for you, you you do you, like. But then there's there's been some some points in my life with different people in, that has introduced small breadcrumbs of inspiration that make that's making me interested. I still don't understand Reiki, I still don't 
really know. I haven't felt the experience you're describing myself because I haven't been <laughs> in a Reiki session for that long. But um, so there's this dif- different people like Joe Dispenza, I think, is a, a great person to look at if you were talking about the science aspects of these kind of electromagnetic fields and, and uh, those things and about the chakras. And there's different names for this. People might want to call them chakras or energy centers or whatever. But there's something there that I don't know good enough to like talk about and explain to others. But it's there's enough there to make me very curious and interested in into want to go beyond the surface and know more about this these things and mm. it's powerful to hear you speak about your own experiences and uh, because there are people doing these things with that has been really healing and um, they've had powerful experiences and i i hope to experience something similar myself one day but there's there's a way to go for me as well i think if i'm just connecting it back to me i i just wanted to to interject that there uh, a number of, of hospitals in the U.S. that, that use uh, alternative methods for, for healing. Um, one is the Mayo Clinic, which is the top uh, um, um, research center uh, and hospital for cancer treatment. There, I think there's last right about 61 hospitals that, that are offering this. Um, and I would say the proof is really, it's, it's in the pudding. Um, there are a lot of things that we don't, that we really don't know. I mean, if you look at, for example, acupuncture, this was not something that was accepted. And now it's, it's, you know, this is something that's part of the Swedish healthcare system. Mm. And I think it's, it's also, you know, there are a lot of alternative healing methods, for example, equine therapy or dog therapy or hydrotherapy, or, you know, there, there's so many different, um, uh, therapies that are, readily available that no one is necessarily earning money on, which is why it might not necessarily be be pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's large. It's it's also you know at the end of the day who's who's paying for studies and and who is you know is it a researcher who you know what kind of research is doing the study? Mm-hmm. If it's someone who is very very left brain, um, who hasn't necessarily had this type of experience themselves, they might not think that it's worth looking at. But it's also like you know, for decades or centuries, people didn't think that homosexuality uh, existed in the animal kingdom. They were just thinking, okay, well, those penguins are just, you know, displaying uh, um, male-dominant behavior, or those ducks, no, they just like to hang out. Well, it was because the researcher or the the person observing, um, they themselves were either closeted homosexual or they just didn't, they didn't want to see it. And it was actually a, a female uh, researcher who walked in there and said, "Actually, you know, they, they're a couple. They've, you know, this is not dominant behavior, that sort of thing." I've kind of pulled it out in left field there, or, <laughs> but there are a lot of things that we really that we aren't aware of. But we we do know that the human body exudes an electric uh, uh, magnetic field around us. Secondly, um, if you look at, at where we come from, you take, for example, a shark, which hasn't evolved for millions of years because they were built perfectly. Mm. They've got these dots around the, the bottom part of their nose, which are the ampullae de Lorenzini. And these, they can basically feel electric currents that are 60 kilometers away, which we know. Mm. Um, we literally come from animals. This is what evolution is. What's to say that we don't have that mechanism, for example? Yeah. The electric currents and, and so on and so forth. And uh, when I looked at the explanation videos by Yoda Spencer, he talked about he made a connection to like the Earth's magnetic field, right? And with the bodies that you can kind of imagine the field going out from your head and then down to a lower point in your body. 
and kind of circling that and that somehow impacts people around you as well but some people are more sensitive to it than others absolutely what comes to me is that we're we're basically talking about healing right and what i wanted to connect with is the episode we had with nils von heine where we talked about personal development and a very first step to develop yourself can be to heal yourself and to work on identifying what aspects or potential obstacles that are in your way that you need to work or uh, heal within yourself. If that is something that you experience in your childhood or you need to practice more self-love or it can be anything that is limiting yourself to grow. And I want to hear your thoughts a bit more on that topic and the aspect of healing yourself. Why is it so important? And do you have any experiences from that? I mean, if you if you look at really toxic people, whatever's going on on the outside, it's going on going in on the inside. And this stuff, and also with positive people, it doesn't isn't you know there's a history there, and it's also whatever they're exuding, you know, toxic bosses, toxic colleagues. There's there's stuff going on there, and so if we can start handling our own stuff, because actually we can't change anyone else, we can only handle what's going in for ourselves. If you look from the Buddhist perspective, we're in the physics perspective, actually, we're all interconnected, that it's, there really, there is no separation between you and me. Um, I was at a lunch for entrepreneurial women, sitting next to a British woman, lived in Norway. And before I started talking to her, I'd gone online and I'd Googled Buddhist, silent retreat and up popped this place called Gaia House in the UK um, a, a few hours outside uh, of London and I thought well you know it looks good is it good ah, ah. fast forward to this luncheon with this woman within 15 minutes this woman from the UK mentions Gaia House and I thought okay so then and there we decided that we were going to book a retreat together we didn't know each other she lived in Oslo so I picked Tai Chi and insight meditation because I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this six days of silent retreat, I've got to have a little bit of activity because I would go watch myself go insane if I only did the insight. Anywho, so the place was outside of London, um, like five hours outside of London, which I didn't really understand at the time, went out there and it was an absolute relief. Um, I walked in there and the whole setup is very retreaty that you sort of get up at oh my god o'clock and then you go meditate and then you do this that and the other thing and then you get a chore and you do that and the only thing I did not want to do was scrub toilets that was like anything and of course that's what I got so the first day I was like scrubby 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 do it as fast as you can and then the next day I was like okay I slowed down I was like I get it I get it and throughout that week you didn't look anyone in the eye, you did not use your phone, you did not read, you did not write, you did none of that, which surprised me that I was actually pretty cool with that. You also roomed with a bunch of people who you met silently. You didn't introduce yourselves, you're just looking at each other. It's totally, again, just silent. And clean food out in the countryside day three day two i felt this is a massive mistake get me a cab get me out of here what am i doing i think that's kind of the panic mm -hmm. day three i literally felt like something around my heart center just popped like opened mm 
It, it it felt like it made a sound. And then by day four, I felt like I'd ta- like taken LSD, which I've never done. But if I had, I was pretty sure this is what it felt like. <laughs> because I was standing, I was walking around the grounds, and I saw this beautiful flower that was purple, and it was vibrant, and it was literally pulsating. Mm. And I just thought, wow. So the days were, you know, the, the routines, the, you know, you're meditating... And then you could feel the panic setting in. You're like, I can't take one more minute of this. And then it goes away. And then you realize, okay, it's it's this pulse. Mm. And then day seven, um, I literally had an experience that made me understand we are interconnected. And I was no longer afraid of death, which had followed me since childhood. Mm. So that was a pretty good six-day and I disappeared. And what that experience, it's sort of, you do this long enough and that kind of, that kind of happens. Um, I didn't want to leave. I had to go back to a relationship with someone who um, was not spiritual, which was very difficult. And getting into the, the real world again with all the noise, coming back to a city where it just felt like nature had just been like, it was a carpet of cement. But I was out with my dog, and I could literally feel the trees pulsate, like all the natural things around me. I was very interconnected with them. I'm super sensitive, so clearly this is, you know, trees didn't start talking to me, but, you know, we weren't far from there. Anyway, so that was Guy House. Then there was, uh, a few years later, I'd read a number of books by Thich Nhat Hanh, who was this Zen Vietnamese monk. Zen Buddhist Vietnamese monk mm. and who had been nominated by Martin Luther King for the Nobel Peace Prize and, and has sort of he was an active Buddhist and that's sort of quite cool that it's it's not just about sitting and looking at your belly button. It's mm. it's actually okay, how do you bring this into the world? Something that really, really resonates with me. And they were at Plum Village in France, they were gonna have the first uh, business mindfulness and ethics retreat. And I just thought, that's for me. Bam booked it and I went and there were so many inspiring people there was the head of sustainability for Tata Motors from India people came in from everywhere people from Israel from Brazil from all over and what I noticed was day one people's voices were quite weak they looked gray they just they were drained everybody and they were all from different parts of the business world but also consulting but also yoga teacher so it was this and Plum Village is it's basically uh, they're monastics that live there so they're the nuns and then they're the monks within I swear to you 24 48 hours whatever I thought of everyone who I came across there it was the diametric opposite mm. they changed like not only did they change but I did too clearly so there was something about being in that natural environment, around with community, meditation, satsang, so sort of talks that was that energized people. And it was fast. Mm. This wasn't like six months or whatever. It was really, really quick. Mm. And there were so many interesting conversations that I was exhausted. So I literally, and there's this thing in Buddhism called noble silence where you just kind of, I literally made this very, very crappy sign and put it on myself. Stop talking to me. I need to just go inwards. And then it felt like, and this is what also came from Gaia House, that when you're silent, it's almost like a fountain of youth mm. springs up. It's not the day one. Mm. It's like it, it, it comes and you realize you're rejuvenated by this in a sense. And for someone who's really, really chatty, mm. 
Mm. That's that's news. Mm. So I rejuvenated, and then again, it's like, okay, how how do I leave this place? Mm. So what I like to say is that Guy House taught me how to die, mm. and Plum Village taught me how to live. Mm. That's for the most part the the death part for sure. That that went because mm. I knew what it was. Mm. Guy House, amazing. It's like, okay, how do you how do you navigate life out of that in a country that the response to the two meter distance between people? Oh God, do we have to stand each other that close? Like mm. the before picture of people <laughs> at the bus stop before COVID, mm. right? They don't yeah, standing yeah. anywhere near. You talk to someone, they think you're crazy. Yeah. They're possibly right, but it's just <laughs> impolite to just assume. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, the people who walk out of, of retreats, mm. then it's like, okay, they're working on themselves. Mm. And you'll notice someone who's got their shit together, who's just, who's kind of a tempered, cool individual. It has an effect. Mm. They might not be able to see it on you, but they do. Mm. And that's, and to be honest, that's barely what we have control over. Mm. We barely have control over what's going on here. Mm. So to do the work. Do the work. Mm. You've got to do the work. Mm. And it's not like that I'm fantastic plastic at this. You know, it's 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 really like brushing your teeth. You can't mm. do it just once a year and expect mm. you're going to be awesome. Exactly. It's a struggle. Mm. And that's just, you just kind of, okay. Yeah, I can really connect with you. Uh, um, I mean, I've, all, I've done a Vipassana retreat for 10 days in complete silence. And I can so connect with everything you're saying that on day day one you're this really optimistic like yay i'm gonna work on myself this is fantastic and then on day three you wanna kill someone it's like okay take me out of this place um what have i done <laughs> what i've gotten myself into it's actually quite a funny story it was this guy that i i worked with and i also had a really rough path in my life and i wanted to connect more with myself and wanted to find the answer to all these questions that you were describing earlier and got myself into meditation and one this colleague of mine he said like yeah but you can go to here in sweden you can go to a retreat every personal retreat and and meditate for 10 days it's awesome i've done it a couple of times and the the insights and the experience from it it's amazing so just do it and Naive as I was, just trusting his word, like, okay, I'm going to do it. And But the experience I got from it was really that, that it's it's a process and it goes, it was a real roller coaster. But I also think, and I agree with you there, if you sit with stuff for a long period of time and let the noise like calm down and then you get the true answers, I think. It's same same thing that we're talking about with sustainability like it is a process and rather than something that you can do ah, something on the side when you have everything under control there's something that you work on every day i think absolutely um and i think um it's like okay where do you find these tools you know do you have mm. to do, do you have to go away i mean i i recently did uh, a nature quest which is basically you you go out into the wilderness with uh, with a handful of people uh, and you you go through a set of questions that uh, have been established by theory you and it, it really they they're quite piercing conversation like sort of questions of you know what it is that you're doing what yeah you know, the heart wants what the heart wants but sometimes you're not listening mm. 
that we you know we we use our minds to sort of navigate and then you you achieve that thing and you're like okay why do i feel so damn empty mm. and maybe it's because you're an engineer but you actually want to be a manicurist or you mm. want to do something else and you're not you're not following this but basically out camping uh fasting which i thought i'm gonna die mm. which i realized you actually don't die mm. that you uh that you can actually handle three days which i thought wow a maple syrup cayenne pepper and lime yeah. juice <laughs> sounds disgusting but it was actually quite yummy i don't know maybe it's because it was like nothing else to eat out there so it was great but um but it just it's it sort of adds credence to that your stomach has also got its own mind mm. that you kind of you need to to temper it a little bit and anyway um it was a very i don't know if you've seen the movie frost I have seen the first one. I have seen seen You've seen the first one. Um, we, we got kind of a peculiar set of instructions. Of before you go out in the wilderness with your tent, you need to ask the environment, can I camp here? Mm. And I just thought, okay. So I walked over there and I got a big fat no. But then I got a bunch of, you know, sort of these rocks that you see in like frost, uh, the, the, the stone boulders, mm. these little party guys, that was actually happening in the forest. I swear to God, I wasn't smoking anything. This was going on. <laughs> but it's just, it's like, it's like what getting a feeling for. And everybody agreed. Everybody who, who was going on this nature quest was sort of like, yeah, we kind of got the feeling. Don't be here, be here. Mm. And again, the, just the, not just being out in nature, but also having these questions adding to what is your purpose actually the the for someone who has a lot of different interests don't forget i used to work for the san francisco ballet of you know burlesque shows pvc if you have a lot of interests it can be a bit of a nightmare because what do i pick mm. right uh, i actually got my blueprint mm. from nature quest mm. and that blueprint was working surprise surprise mental health mm. with the nature with purpose driven so the eudaimonic aspect of personal development and young people that kind of ties into uh, like what's next for you and i think that's probably the last thing we have time to touch on before uh, rounding off because we this is going to be our longest episode ever and that's that's beautiful <laughs> uh, i love that but how does this manifest itself like what's you have your vision and right. what's that's that trickle down into so it's, um, I mean, first and foremost, I have to have uh, patience yeah. and a little yeah. bit of, of, of faith. I mean, I'm, I'm currently in, in uh, my position right now. A lot of stuff is going on, so I, I don't really know what's going to happen sort of next. And that's kind of what um, I've realized is that I can, I can have my vision, number one. Number two, I need to have the intention, but I need to let go of the result. Because what I think the final result is going to be might not be that at all. It might be something even more amazing. So what, I've, what I'm doing right now is I'm taking the first couple of steps and then looking at the steps that are kind of revealing themselves. And it's about people and it's also about when you get a yes or following, following the yes and when you get a no that you take it with grace and the way that you hope someone else would take a no from you. Mm. That was my sort of my my uh, Wheaties wisdom from from last week, mm. where I thought, oh, you know, you know, we met uh, on Gotland and totally gonna you know open up the center and work with natural healing, the uh, dogs and you know, all this kind of stuff. I had this place, absolutely perfect place, mapped out. It was gonna be here because it was an awesome place, mm. and I called and I pitched it and just no, mm. and and of course you know ten years ago. 
actually, let's be honest, two years ago, I would have been <laughs> quite crushed and just demoralized by this. But then other things kind of popped up. One of the people that I went on the nature quest with, he just happens to be a psychiatrist. He is um, an individual who basically said that he he realized for all the people that he's working with and who he's treating, the ones that are the worst off are the ones that hold the greatest amount of wisdom. Mm. When he said that, I almost fell over. This is a psychiatrist, and he just basically laid that out. And that's something that I'm kind of seeing right now, that it's sort of the very left-brain community and the right-brain community are mm. kind of reaching across the aisles, which is very, very cool. So the the goal, whether this is in six months, a year, I don't know. But what I do know is, what do I want to do? What could I do for the rest of my life? Because I don't plan on retiring. Because I think that's sort of one of the most dangerous years in your life. Mm. What, what could you stand and stomach doing? Not only that, but what would you thrive doing? And for me, uh, absolutely mental health, uh, youth, kids, uh, and then using, the, um, uh, the, using nature and also this eudaimonic, like this idea of... Mm asking these questions because mm. why are all these retreats for example it might not even be a retreat but you look at Bhattavada you look at Plum Village and Gaia House and they're all they all have tend to have a youth section but it's never it's kind of an afterthought it kind of happens later what if we had nature quests for younger people and mm. that it was something systemic and it was being studied mm. so I'm in touch with people who um True story. Standing by the bus stop, minding my own business. <laughs> this woman walks past and says, hey, and I've met her once before at work. American, super hilarious woman. And she said, um, hey, we're, you know, I'm going, let's sit on the bus. You know, we've got kids the same age. And we start talking and I t start talking about my ambition. And her, she just lights up. And I'm like looking at this woman, you know, mental health, suicide, children, what, you know. And she said, uh, you know, I'm in contact with the team who houses everyone who works with mental health and adolescents at Karolinska Institute. And she also, and I've also been thinking, I need to work with someone who is a data analyst, who, is, who knows how to do this. Mm. She is our chief data analyst at Save the Children and has worked with the World Health Organization and UNICEF in New York. This woman is data, mm. and she's funny. Mm. She's awesome. She uses statistics and talks about them, and then you show a little leg, she's hilarious, this woman. <laughs> So where am I going to be? I don't know. I'm I'm kind of letting go my massive need for control and to control things mm. and to not excel my way out of this because you can't excel your way through life. And this is this is so we'll see. Trust the process. Trust the process. All right. Yeah, Annika, I think it was a wonderful conversation. I wouldn't mind going on for a couple of more a couple of more hours to be honest, but we I think we've reached our endpoint and in the end of each episode we have a section where our guests guests given the opportunity to to give an encouragement to the people or the listeners uh, going forward towards this decade and so what would your encouragement be i would say uh dig where you stand anything that you need to know you actually already know it and whatever has come across your life that's probably the thing that you need to look at. Mm. And it's something that was key for me this summer. So A, dig where you stand. And B, it's a wonderful phrase. I heard it on Oprah, of course. When are we not <laughs> listening to Oprah? First the pain 
and then the rising. So if life is too painful and you think, I can't do this, know and understand that there's a flip side, that hang on, there's another side to this. And it goes, it goes the other way, that you might think, oh, I want a bunch of money, great, you know, and then some, you know, something. And it's sort of like the Dalai Lama said, you know, show me, I'll sh- you know, show me the most amazing apartment building, the most luxurious building you can imagine, and I'm going to show you someone who wants to jump from the top of it. Hmm. So it's both. Great. So where can people find you or your projects or whatever you're active in right now? That's going to be interesting because I'm desperately trying to go offline. Um, <laughs> so don't, don't contact you at all. Like that's, that's the main idea. <laughs> I will feel if there's a tremor in the force. No, I um, I would say LinkedIn is probably a really, really good, yeah. uh, good place. Um, and and I'm, uh, you know, I'm at the Save the Children Sweden, so I'm there. But LinkedIn is probably the best, yeah. the best bet. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. It was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And yeah, thank yeah, you very thank much, Annika. So lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you.